Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snacket Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to frito to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Three mistakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void but prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. Hey there, welcome to ATL and 29 of Peachtree Hoops Podcast, where we look at the NBA from the starting point of Atlanta. My name is Kevin Chenard. I'm here with Glenn Willis. Uh, we're recording on, I guess it's a Thursday night. It's a rainy night here in Atlanta. The Hawks have lost four, five, six, whatever. Has some number of games in a row. Glenn, Glenn tell me it's going to be okay. Uh, I mean, it depends on what your definition of okay is, but it's definitely going to be okay. Uh, I, I think if you, if you like, were sure they're going to be a, like something like a top three team in the East, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, not completely impossible, um, but yeah, it looks it looks really rough right now. I'm sure we'll get into different aspects of that, but it's they're going to be fine in the big picture. I'm sure. I'm kind of fatigued of watching the defense at the moment sure um, um i know that there's some coaching things but on just a basic kind of level you know I, I normally distrust the coaches who say well it's effort we got to try hard we got to do it for 48 minutes it's just kind of cliche and deflecting and it's like, Oh, that's just kind of coach speak and kind of gives them cover. But like when I watch the Hawks these days, it's, you know, they have God only knows what ranked defense, 26, 27, 28, something like that. They have so many guys who are getting cooked on the perimeter. Yeah. Is getting cooked on the perimeter. Bogdanovich. That one concerns me a lot. Kevin Herter, like, uh, okay, this is totally separate from Steph Curry because Steph Curry is Steph Curry. Take that game and just chuck it out the window. But for the rest of the season, it's like, okay, Kevin Herter is a pretty good defender and he has a shot a lot of the time. But when, you know, just talking in terms of like blow-bys, like he starts out okay. And he, you know, he makes those first couple of back pedals with his defender. And then, you know, he either like backs off and kind of, you know, let, you know, kind of avoid the foul and kind of makes too big of a path for the defender, or he'll just like bail out and just kind of put an arm around either side of the defender. And it's like, you kind of, you got to skirt the gray area of kind of, you know, stay with some contact, but don't give the overt foul and don't give them the clean path to the rim because you've got, when he's defending dribble drives, he's, he's got a good start to it. He just doesn't finish it all the way to the rim. But anyway, I'm just concerned with the blow buys and I, I don't want to pin that on Nate. That's not Nate. I don't think. No. And I think, you know, hopefully we can jump in here and, and kind of clean up the conversation as we go, but that's what make, to me makes this conversation hard is that, to, down to the individual player, there's there's kind of different issues going on there. Um, first of all, Herder, you know, he clearly, um, you know, was not physically 100% when the season started. Right. Um, that, sh- that showed up most obviously in his shooting. Yep. Now he's making shots. I wonder how much he's struggling with. What are the actual, like, rules enforcement right now? Because, again, Steph Curry... I'll be honest with you. I'm not sure any of the fouls <laughs> gets a that were called on him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. totally. I mean, I don't, yeah. I'm not sure any of them were actual fouls. I, I'm not saying about the rule book, but by, by the way, I see the rest of the league this year. This year Correct. You know, and, and that's going to happen against superstars. We all know yep. that that's an eternal, you know, universal truth in the NBA. Um, but I think he's definitely been one of the better um, defenders. Uh, he's still you know, next to Hunter, probably the best on the team at working over screens. Maybe DeLon is kind of, 
you know, a, a close third um, and stuff. But I, I do think uh, it looks to me like maybe he's struggling with what am I allowed to get away with, you know, and, and um, how much, how much you know, physicality do I need to bring and to trust the officials to call it consistently. And I think, I don't want to make this conversation about officials, but I think officials are going through a massive adjustment that we're all going to have to just live with, you know, and, and this is going to take some time and that's a whole, that's a separate thing, but it could be showing up a little bit more in Herder's play because of, um, because of the fact he is asked, you know, more than other guys to kind of chase over screens and, and take the guy who's going to more often have the ball and, and, and things like that. Um, with, I think Hunter, we, you and I talked about Hunter was exceptionally good to start the season. Clearly, He's showing up on the injury report uh, every day now, and he's, um, you know, maybe not, uh, you know, capable of physically right the second of handling as much, you know, even when he, if and when he gets cleared to play another game. To me, Bogdanovich is always going to be a problematic kind of point of attack defender. And, you know, I think his, um, one of the reasons he fits well next to Hunter is that, you know, Bogdanovich is better defending up to bigger positions, correct? Because of his strength, right? So that that can kind kind of work. Um, and there's always the question of what's what's the best thing to do with Trey. Um, Cam has been, you know, I think in, uh, mostly good. Most uh, when I say when, when I think of Cam being a good defender, I think of more of a disruptiveness than just being more of a stopper. And then Delon has played and not played, and we've kind of talked about that and that's not that's not right. every single person you know but but like Bogdanovich having a hard time keeping kind of a legitimate perimeter threat in front of him should never really surprise anyone it's just a matter of how you're going to kind of it just match seems up. like he's worse this year though <laughs> yeah and but now he's on the injury report that's right? true and, yeah yeah yeah. his ankles so, bugging him yeah for sure and that and that was kind of an issue last year it's I mean, to me a good some of this goes back to you know what he was fighting through in the postseason last year should, you know, just bring so much more attention to how good Capella was then. And he's sort of the next, he's sort of a separate, but the big piece defensively, and he's clearly, uh, you know, not right um, physically yet either. He didn't play any in the preseason and was managing through, I, I don't know how we describe it fairly, I, I, um, but uh, injury management kind of scenario, you know, if that's the best way to put it. Um and he and even whether it's rim running or um diving to the rim uh you know and pick and roll offense sort of on both ends of the court you can just see he's not jumping with the same uh kind of um agility and power uh that we typically see him with and those sorts of things so all of that to me is adding up and then separately there's the scheme that they've been running um but the, i mean defensively they're hard to watch right now when they switch one through five against Clint away from the rim. He doesn't have the ability to recover uh, the way that I think we'd normally expect him to, whether that's just not quite having his legs or whether it's injury management kind of kind of stuff that um, is part of his normal day-to-day maintenance for right now. I, I don't know, but, you know, last year when um, they were at their best defensively is when he could anchor and kind of stay in the middle and really affect shots at the rim, near the rim, and he's getting so far afield from the paint so often right now. Now, in the last, I think, one or two games, they've done more one through four switching than one through five switching. So maybe there's a little bit of a move away from so much of the one through five switching. We'll just have to kind of see the next few games how it goes. But it's... Yeah. I hate to try to make trends based on Golden State's offense but because they're yeah, so different. Sure. Yeah, For sure. Yeah, But... um. Yeah, I think the thing that bugs me is like as bad as they are on defense, like Trey's been okay. Like especially in the half court. Like he's in the half court, he's you know, they give him less responsibility. Uh, you know, teams will opponents will try to give him more responsibility, they'll try to make him the health defender, you know, the low man on the weak side and such. But like he's he's been pretty good like he'll make those rotations things that you know things that he did not do in his first year part of his second year like he does that stuff now like and he's small but he's quick he's smart he's got his hands are getting better on defense like i think if you, if you told somebody oh atlanta's going to be 27th in defense after 12 games everybody would blame trey and it's i don't think i don't think it's very little of it's been him like he's been pretty good the one thing that i would say about trey is 
he's starting to freelance again too much in transition on transition defense. Like these plays of frustration. Oh, there's a turnover. What are you going to do? Get your butt back. No. And then he's kind of flailing around trying to jump at a pass that he's going to have no chance of getting. And then it was just kind of the lazy kind of play of frustration. But I think a lot of that has to do with losing. Hopefully that those bad habits get fixed just with a little bit more success. You know, you, you, you don't get frustrated and you don't do the, some silly things that, you know, you're just giving the scheme away when you do that kind of stuff. Yeah, I, I agree. He has been good. He's, um, yeah, he's where he needs to be consistently. And, yeah. you know, when, when, um, when I've coached smaller players, I've always used the principle that you have to be where you need to be a little earlier than yep. the, the people who aren't. And, and he's, he's better about that. Um, now, I, in terms of like some of the lazy ish stuff, like taking the take file at half court or or going for that one's not too bad. That that's like there's some strategic advantage there. There is, but there's still some habits like habits yeah. forming stuff that's not um, great. You know, maybe that's too yeah. much my my coach showing up in the conversation. <laughs> but um, you know, habits, habits, habits. I don't sound like Bud, but um, you know, uh, but you, you know, for me. I, I, it, it kind of starts with Clint. Yeah, and, so many of those Miss Bunnies are just right. two points going the other way because it's, number one, it's like a fast break opportunity. It's a fast break opportunity without the best defender in the picture. It's yeah. just he's got to finish better, and that just gives up so many easy chances when he misses at the rim. Yeah, and then on defense, it's him get, not being in the middle, not being close enough to the rim to impact plays consistently. And then to your point earlier, I don't care who you have in the middle. Well, I mean, it could be like the greatest, you know, uh, you know, big man defender of all time. But if the perimeter defenders are constantly letting the ball handlers get downhill with freedom towards the paint, they're not going to be that effective. Right. So the combination of Clint looking like he's not 100% physically and issues they're having keeping ball handlers in front is just a recipe for disaster. Um, now, scheme-wise... You know, I, I don't want to get too technical, but switching one through five versus one through four, I think most you know listeners can totally get get their head around around that. Um, but I, there, there's more, multiple ways. Well, there's multiple ways that a lot of things. But when you're switching one through four, there's kind of straight switching one through four, mm-hmm. um, which is typically perimeter defenders switching all the time, right? And the mm-hmm. big man staying in the middle when the opposing team plays five out that's a little harder to do but what have you um up until about the middle of i don't know maybe to even maybe you know 20 games into nate's run nate's time as a head coach last year um they were doing what's called red uh, which i've heard called red one through four Lloyd called it red i think he, yeah he did he he called and lloyd loved the red base switching which yes. is switching to deny the middle which is a different thing than your general one through four switching which means all if you can kind of kind of visualize your perimeters defender is typically facing outward away from the middle of the court and not top locking but kind of middle locking all of their players and the big man is up usually like a step below the free throw line calling everything out for the purpose of not just switching one through four as a general rule but to switch when needed to keep the ball out of the middle. They're letting ball get middle a ton this year compared to all that last year's sample and the LP sample and things like that. And I'm curious if the big wings that they have, even like if you think about Bogdanovich fitting into the concept of switching where he just needs to keep the ball out of the middle and not keep the, the ball like in front of him, no matter where it's trying to be taken, I think they're better suited for the kind of that red scheme where the goal is to face outward, keep the ball in between the defender and the sideline and not let the ball come middle and clinch there in the middle to help basically discourage ball handlers from even kind of really trying to really force their way in that direction. That's gone. That red base switching where they're denying the middle seems to be completely gone. They're getting Clint switched out like near the three point break out on the sides, you know, and things like that, but it it'd be interesting to me to have if if Nate would field a technical question like that to ask like, hey, you know, what is kind of the concept here? You know, it's a, is no middle the same priority it was last year? Um, uh, 
when you're switching kind of what's driving decisions about what kind of switching you're doing, um, that that's all interesting to me. And that's what looks apart from is Hunter healthy? Is Clint's not healthy? When is he going to be healthy? Are they going to, you know, to me, that scheme stuff fits into how this roster fits as defensive units. To me, that jumps out to me. Maybe that's because I'm like, I watch the game as a coach because of my coaching relationship with the game, but that stuff jumps out at me. Like, I could, I would, especially like Bogdanovich is the perfect example of, I could expect Bogdanovich to keep the ball out of the middle. I can't expect Bogdanovich to keep the ball in front of him, period. <laughs> you know, and I can especially expect Bogdanovich to keep the ball in the middle if Clint's there to further discourage the ball from coming there anyway. But right now, everybody's, you know, basically being asked to kind of keep the ball in front of you. And, the, and Nate talks about that all the time. got to keep the ball in front of us. got to keep the ball in front of us, you know. I don't know how realistic that is. I don't know how effective that is. And that's something I'm really watching, if that makes sense. So it almost feels like a segue to the other thing that I want to ask you about, but is this why Nate is so committed to the hockey line change is that he wants Collins to be with Capella so that if, if, for example, you're switching one to five, you still have another rim protector out there coming from the weak side if if Clint gets sucked up into the action away from the rim? That's an awesome question, and I think that is really logical. Um, one of the reasons you might want to take a guy like Clint and get him into one three five switching is because that unlocks all of the help that John can give a lineup by being that second guy who can impact at the rim. Um, does that make it the right thing to do? I don't know, but that certainly, I, if I were like watching this team, I was like, oh, if you're not leveraging John's ability to help, uh, helper at the rim, a guy who has, you know, really good athleticism to kind of cover distance on the court and kind of get in, you know, get where he needs to go to impact the play. That, that makes a lot of sense to me. I don't, it doesn't make sense to me for McDonough. <laughs> doesn't make sense to me for Trey, you know, right. but as to unlock what John can do great. But you're back up, you know, and to your point, this is maybe why it's first, you know, first unit, second unit all the time is that you can't do that with Gallo at the four, you know, that's obviously a, a non-starter, you know, and so, and that puts Gorgie kind of in a tough spot because um, yeah. what, what, you know, what are we doing with him? It's, it's hard. Like he looks a little, to me, my word, a little lost in terms of kind of what is the construct of the defense that we're trying to execute here, which is totally different. I mean, it couldn't be more different, uh, the difference between JC and Gallo at, at the four. But I think you're spot on there. But I would imagine that has to be one of the reasons they want to do some of this is just because of what, to maximize some of what John can give you. Well, the reason I said that that was kind of a segue to another question is like, you know, in watching the Hawks, you know, and thinking sort of theoretically about it. When he's performing as well on offense as he is, you know, if you go back a couple games, two games, three games, he was having some just spotless nights on offense. And it just felt like, you know, with him out there with Clint at the same time, there was just, it was hard to get him opportunities. Um, so in your eyes, you know, what, what can, I mean, it feels to me like he just, he has to do more, but you know, when you're looking at it and you're looking at Clint being there with him, like what can you do to kind of keep him more involved? Well, I mean, they've, they've, Clint has been less involved in the high screen role this year, for sure. I mean, everybody on tw- Twitter is talking about, and, and some have directed questions to me around, why are we running? Why aren't we running as much double drag? Um, that was such uh, kind of a, a boom for kind of getting Trey downhill, um, you know, before the, this season. But I do think they're putting, uh, clearly putting Clint and John into different areas on the court. Um, where last year, Clint's first season playing with the Hawks, despite the trade, you know, the deadline the prior year, um, they were in each other's space quite a bit, you know, early on in the season and, and even, you know, into the playoffs at times, kind of getting into each other's space. Clint is always looking for something helpful to do. And sometimes that gets him kind of into spaces like where a coach might say, no, Clint, just stay down on the dunker spot. He's like, but I want to set a back screen for somebody, or I want to do something, you know, helpful. For, and, and a lot of that comes from the way that D'Antoni and his staff kind of coached Clint when he was younger. 
um, and stuff. But I do think they're keeping Clint kind of out of John's airspace. And I think that's why for stretches of games, John's getting, you know, more usage, more shot opportunities, even some of the passing opportunities he has is because he just has a little bit more space and he's, he looks empowered to me in a way that maybe he hasn't been um, prior to this year. Why does that disappear in the second half of game? Why has that seem to have disappeared in the second half of games? I think teams are just kind of adjusting and bringing more weeks out help over to wherever John's trying to um, kind of act in that high pick and roll. You know, I think it really helps when John is making shots the way he has been the last three or four games um, in the pick and pop where he's knocking down everything above the three-point break when he's left open to shoot um, up there. But uh, quite obviously, you're really maximizing Trey the most when he's creating shots at the rim for his bigs. And, you know, there's sort of good and bad news there. Um, The good being (laughs) that Clint, uh, in his ideal condition, is, you know, pretty awesome at that um his finishing has been terrible by comparison this year um and it's not like it was perfect last year especially in the, in nope. the playoffs there were times <laughs> um but he's still fast from the point of the screen to the rim he's fast he's yeah that his first step is long and quick which is unusual for a guy his size and so he has a lot to offer there and then the combination of him and john is a lot to throw throw at a defense um you know part of but i mean so your question was about JC and I, I think in the first half they're getting him a ton of stuff there in the second half they're kind of having to they're being tempted to at a time being um, uh, kind of forced to make a decision do we want to play him at the five to open that back up in the second half of the game after adjustments have been made and there's good looks like everything is good and good and bad uh, to that um, I think right now <laughs> While the defense is struggling, that play looking for like your strongest offensive touch is probably a smart thing to go with right now, right. Um, which is JC more time at, at the five. If you, right. because if you're you know, until you can really kind of get that defensive baseline established there, you might as well go for hey, let's get I don't know what 12, 13 minutes of JC and Gallo together, which which is really powerful offensively. Um, if you're going to be a bottom five defense with Clinton John on <laughs> anyway, probably might as well kind of swing that way. But JC has been incredible. I feel like sometimes like when's the last time he actually missed a shot, you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, and which is just great to see, especially after the, the contract. Um, some, some players um, naturally feel a lot of ton of pressure, um, but he's been, he's been so good. But yeah, I, I, I think they need, I think he needs to be right behind Trey uh, in sort of shots and, and touches that are um, intentionally, you know, kind of cultivate for him in the offense. Let me, let me finish with, I'm looking at his numbers, like for the last three seasons, and I'm rounding a little bit, his shot attempts have gone from 15 to 12 to 10 and a half this season. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it, it, okay. One of the things that has struck me a little bit the last um, maybe four games or so it seems like clint ends up at the free throw line uh, almost the way like an elbow facilitator would but he seems like he's dead in the middle of the free throw line or free near the free throw line area where you'd shoot the free throws kind of right in the middle with nobody guarding him just kind of trying to be there as a passer just kind of a you know give it to me i'll, I'll give it back to you or give it to somebody else that's up here and just kind of not even facilitate, but just kind of provide some continuity or connectedness or something so that it, he's doing something in the offense. Right. Is there something that you could do with him? I'm trying to remember what game it was and what opponent was. It was just a, a five who was just totally not a shooter. And they were just, it was almost like they, they just kind of put him out into space, not under any pretense that this person was actually going to shoot, but just to kind of take advantage of the defensive three seconds rule and just say, yeah, okay. Uh, if we put him over here, you know, you either have to go down, you know, he was just, just a space consideration without any consideration for shooting, just take your non-shooting big and move them the heck out. Just because, you know, if, if you use the person who's supposed to be guarding him down in the paint, you're going to get a three seconds called on you. Is there anything you could do like that where like, yeah, we know he's not going to shoot, but 
just put him over there anyways because you'll keep that man out of the lane. Yeah, you can. And it's, like I said, especially because he's the kind of big who's always looking for something helpful to do. Like he'll set it, like if he's on the weak side with, say, Bogdanovich, he's looking for an opportunity to screen Bogdanovich free into a left or towards the middle, you know, or, you know, towards a, a cut towards a free throw line. Same with mm-hmm. Herder. So there's a lot, I think there's a lot you can do there. Um, and as a matter of fact, when Clint is kind of in the middle to start a possession, say near the top of the key, they're running uh, what's typically called kind of their wide action where Clint will look like he's either going, he's like right at the top of the key and he's looking at the ball handler on one side and say, which is typically Trey and say Bogdanovich on the other side. Right. And he's trying to decide, Trey, do you want me to come set you a screen or do you want me to turn around and go work a screen for Bogdanovich to come collect the ball at the top of the key. Mm-hmm. And that's called wide action. And typically he's going to go away from Trey and, and create that. So there's a ton you can do with Clint, um, um, not on the baseline of the Ducker spot, not in the play, just because of how active he is. And I think it's harder to keep a rebounder uh, kind of under wraps uh, in, so, in some cases when they're, you know, further from the rim um, during that portions of the play like that, uh, which creates other kind of leverage too. Now he's not been as effective as a rebounder and his uh, running and <laughs> his ability to run the floor right now, I don't really want him chasing a lot of offensive rebounds unless they're kind of obvious uh, putback opportunities. Um, but I do think there's quite a lot they can do. I, I was, I was just looking here. John's first, their first five games, John's uh, shots, 11, 8, 14, 11, 16. Uh, and since then, uh, he's only hit double digits three times. Um, I think some of that was kind of the Philly game was a, a blowout. Um, and then against Washington, um, you know, I'm not sure what's going on there because he had no, literally no personal fouls, but he only had seven shots. Uh, but that was a win. So, um, you know, so it's, uh, there's, against Utah, he had some foul trouble early, uh, and then against, uh, in both games, you know, so with John, sometimes you look at his shots and it comes back to, like, was that one of the games he, he had some foul trouble? But uh, I do, I, I think your broader point is, like, more consistent involvement uh, from John, more shots uh, from John. What can we do? Can that work with he and Clint? I think it can. I did. I'm just. I don't know if they have um, as much offensive creativity under the makeup of the assistant coaching staff they have this year as they had last year. But that's something to keep an eye on. But I, I think they need more. I think he needs more opportunity, and totally agree with that. What do you want to talk about? Um, <clears throat> why? Why things are going to be okay? You know, uh, like okay. I said, if you were you know expecting them to be, if you thought they were come into the season as like a no doubt contender, you know, that's, I've been open about the fact that I think there's still one player away from that, whether you can internally develop that player or whether you need to make a consolidation trade or whatever that might look like to get all the way there. I, I, I think trade gets you a, a long way towards there, but in terms of them being a team that's going to win, you know, you know, between 45 to 50 games, that's still uh there's still a, a path, a very realistic path to that. In my view, the schedule has been tough. Um, and just like last year, you know, the first, you know, 10, 15 games were rough because they were getting guys back from injury and getting guys playing into shape. And then, you know, the schedule has been pretty brutal, you know, for them in terms of how much, how many games they've already played in a condensed schedule. So there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic here. You know, that always for me starts with Trey. Um, Trey is capable if you get the right uh, kind of things around him, uh, carrying a team to, you know, in the range of a top five offense, I know the Hawks have never gotten bully there. Um, uh, but I think with this roster uh, healthy um, and not having potentially if they can solve for the second unit drag, um, that, you know, they are capable of kind of getting, getting there. And then the defensive pieces, whether we're thinking about Clint being what we know he can be when he's right. Um, getting a Kogwu back, um, thinking about what, how good Hunter has been when he's been physically right on the perimeter, um, ha- having two defenders like Reddish and Herter uh, on the second unit. Um, so there's just there's, the, the roster still has a ton of depth, a ton of talent, a ton of talent, um, and I, I just think the team kind of needs to catch their breath and get their bearings after a real, after an admittedly rough start. 
Um, there are some schematic things that I don't know how this coaching staff is going to um, kind of try to solve for. Um, but, you know, they were incredibly good down the stretch last year and into the postseason. And I have to think that there are conversations and there is work and effort being put towards, you know, what do we have to get back, uh, do to kind of get back to moving towards playing at that level. And, and I'm still, you know, really optimistic about this team. Trey's that good. The depth is that good. Um, and, you know, they just have a lot of different kind of ways they can go um, to generate the lineups that make the most sense. Um, you know, I, I hope to God that like, I don't know, a month or two from now, we're not still talking about full bench units. <laughs> But, you know, we'll just have to kind of kind of see where that goes. But I'm still pretty optimistic about the team. How about you? I'm optimistic in the sense that when they put Trey and John and Kevin Herter, maybe DeAndre Hunter out there, though, those lineups with those players that propelled them in the playoffs last season, they've been pretty good. Like, those lineups are pretty good. And, you know, Clint can be better. But if you say, well, that's conditioning, I mean, that makes sense. I'm worried about the bench. I'm worried. The, the whole vibe there just isn't right. Uh, Cam Reddish has twice as many turnovers as he does assists. It doesn't look yeah. like he's passing. To me, it doesn't look like Gallinari's passing. He's average. Gallinari's averaging 0.4 assists a game, which yeah. that's a staggeringly low total. Like he's playing fewer minutes, but. Um, that, you know, even on a per minute basis, let me see if I can find a number here without killing everybody's time. His, his oh, per 36 minute assist total went from 2.2 last season to one this season, like more than 50% decrease. It just feels like every time that Gallinari gets the ball, he's like, I got to score now. I'm going to do something. I'm going to go down in the paint. He doesn't feel confident in his shot. So a lot of it's just, I'm going to go try to rough somebody up in the paint and get a shot up or get fouled. But like yeah, the ball doesn't shot. move. Like Cam doesn't move the ball that well, unless he's in the like. Sometimes when he's in the corner, he'll like make the hockey assist, and you know he'll 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 see that the next man is open, and that'll be a good pass. But there are a lot of times, you know, if he's on the wing and he just gets it, it's sort of instant shot. You know, if he's driving to the rim, it's I got to figure out how to get it up one way or another. Like it's just the passing on the bench unit, and then you know if they're playing Delon, he's you know, he's the kind of point guard that isn't necessarily your, your big assist rack or not. I wouldn't say passing is DeLon right strength. So it's like, it just doesn't feel like there's enough continuity in that bench passing wise if Gallinari and Reddish aren't doing it and they're not doing it. Yeah. And, more, and it's worse when Lou's out there not making shots. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think, I feel like well, there's two things I want to share here. One is um, kind of humorously. I was watching um Houston and Detroit I think they played last night and Kelly I was watching Kelly Olenek who's who got uh, hurt that stinks who got hurt yeah I know I think he's gonna miss like six weeks or more um but he was like when he get the ball he would either shoot it or move it shoot it or move it shoot it or move it and that jumped out me like oh my god why isn't Gallo doing that anymore you know um and it just kind of was a stark thing um for me um, but, you know, but then I recall, like, especially the first five, six teams, they were chasing mismatches so hard offensively and throwing the ball down into whether it was Hunter or JC with the smaller defender on either of them or Gallo with, you know, a weak defender on the other team's second unit or whatever that is. And they would bleed like seven, eight, nine, ten shots on the second clock, just just trying to get the ball down into the mid post. Right. Um, which is to me, I mean, I think it's great to have that option when the opposing team puts a big wing on trade to go at whoever the opposing say point guard is defending and Hunter right. is awesome as sort of a hammer, you know, in those yeah. situations, but to do it like as one of, you know, the things you're doing pretty consistently across the whole game is not to me, not what you want to do with the, the team that's built around Trey. So it's, you know, and I um, want them to do that for John Collins and they yes do it with Gallinari and they do it with Reddish. Well, Reddish just does the... <laughs> Never mind, I didn't even finish that sentence. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I mean, it's funny, Reddish had a wild start, but then he had like three or four games where he was within the construct of the offense, and, yes. and like he looked like he was doing the things that McDonough does, Herter does, or if he's chased off, he's working toward the nail, trying to create a shot in the middle of the paint in front of the rim and stuff. And then he's kind of gone back, you know, and he's a young guy. Maybe it's just a consistency thing, but, um, but I, you know, 
it's what the the actions and the sets they're chasing and the shot profile they're chasing you know we can talk we we don't have to talk about in depth but you know nate had you know pull up uh shots from two as a strong strong emphasis when he was in the coach at the pacers and that's what the hawks are getting right now compared to the last few years with trey since they've had trey on the team is you know more shots at the rim shots from the three-point line and it, you know that's who that's what nate teams have been historically I don't want to say that's what he'll always be because, you know, they were phenomenal last year at the end of the season. Um, but there's, there's this reality that in the postseason, opposing teams are going to work super hard to keep you off the rim and chase you off the three-point line. And so having guys like Herter um, and, and, and to a lesser degree, Bogdanovich, who can create their own shots in the mid-range and do so um, pretty, with pretty efficient results, good. In the regular season, that's not, I don't think, what a team really wants to go for is to say we're going to chase those harder shots that we have to in the postseason. I just don't think that's going to get them where they need to go. Um, Nate, my my view, my own personal view, can be a little, I mean, all NBA coaches are stubborn to a certain degree. It's just kind of almost required to, to get into that job, but a little stubborn, a little rigid, historically speaking. But I, you know, trying to keep an open mind and see where they might. Uh, take this here in a little bit and you know the super the super curious part of me is what does Trey think about all this you know what is Trey saying right. what kind of conversations is Trey having with the coaching staff and right. the way he's been elevated to uh, a natural kind of point of leadership is, is Trey saying hey this is not what we what I want this is not what I think we uh, are going to be best served doing and you know and I, I, I think uh, to kind of cap this little rant off is I do think the average fan doesn't always know like teams are almost always trying to build up to something and when you catch them kind of mid process it can be pretty ugly and it can right. be pretty clunky what are they building what are they building up to i don't know what the answer is but i i don't think that they're um embracing all of their methods right now they're gonna have to work towards it and solve it um and we'll see where they get here in the next you know 10 games or what have you especially now that the schedule is gonna be a little bit easier for them so it's hard to watch, but I'm still pretty good about seeing. See, I when you say that they're trying to build up to something, I mean, I think we saw last season that the Hawks kind of did it in the way that Nate wants to build it up to. I mean, I, again, I feel I like I'm giving Nate a pass here and, and not the players, but right. with the, you know, I, I don't think that their shot profile is ideal. Let's start with that. But I think part of it is that they're not patient enough that I can live with the long twos. If, you know, if I can give you some axioms that are sort of rules to go by that you check off the box before you get to that long two. I mean, what Nate wants is he wants them to use shot clock. Right. And so you can probe for different kind of shots during the process of the shot clock, but they're getting a lot of long twos with 12 seconds, 11 seconds on the clock where you're just, you're bailing out the defense at that point. And that's not what Nate wants. Like he he'll live with the long two. If you've hunted the mismatch and you're down near the end of the clock, but they're not, they're taking it with a lot of, I mean, again, this is anecdotal. I would love to dig up the numbers, but this is just an idea that we got to. on the fly. Yeah, yeah. So I have not well, prepared for this, but I, I, in my gut, I feel like that, that their long twos that they're taking this season are much earlier in the much earlier in the clock than the, what they were doing late last season and then the playoffs. They they don't seem to have that patience to probe for more quality looks before they get to that long two, and they're yeah. just taking the long two early. Yeah, and, I mean, and and there's like just like anything, you know, the sample we're kind of roughly describing here. There's sure. good and bad even in that, right? So. Like they'll, uh, uh, when Carter's on the court, a lot of times the ATO they'll run will start with Kevin in the left corner, lifting through often a DHO at the left three point break and then getting him downhill towards the rim, through the nail towards the rim. And he's awesome. He's been awesome sure. with that, lifting that left corner. If he stands that's, on the dotted line, he's magic. Right. And so that's the, I mean, you may, that Kevin may get to that shot eight, nine seconds, and that's coming out that's of the That's fine. That's, draw that's short. I'm not, yeah, we're not, I don't want to talk about 11-footers. Like, if you get a quality 11-footer, that's a great shot. Yeah, that's that's his money, that's his money shot. That's better, than a, that's better than a rim shot for him. 
for sure and and so i want to make sure like listeners don't think like we're casting no, that's all a great of that into this. yeah right um but what you know whether it's hunter or whoever kind of dribbling into that area off of the first ball screen 19 feet. um everybody 19 feet even down and closer to maybe 14 feet and the worst part is with the other four players just watching him do it that's not uh, how you put pressure on defense yeah. and i mean i love one. like trey's 14 footers give me that shot all the time too like i'll put that with the kevin hurris rally if he could jump off two feet on balance yep. and you know have the airspace to get it up god bless him that's a great shot take it yeah and and, and trey you know deserves all the empowerment and needs yep. all the empowerment that kind of comes with the role that he has so that's that i think that's fine yep. as well i could do without the 32 footers with 18 on the shot clock you know at times um but at the same time, if I, were, if I were like hypothetically the coach, you know, uh, by some like in some mystical universe where I I would I would not try to coach Trey necessarily away from really, I would want him to feel empowered to take the shots he feels good about. That's what you have to do with really. Yeah, and first. I think those those set up some of his dribble drives. Like if he can extend sure. the defense, you know that you just look at the thirty-two footer in isolation. Oh God, that's awful. But like if that pulls the defender up two more feet, like right. there's a value to that. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Um, I, when it's when they're down thirteen in the third quarter, yeah, and the other team's quarter, on a seven zero run, that's kind right, of a shit shot. Yeah, yeah, those, that's the times where he's like, "Oh no, that was terrible." Yeah, not that one. Um, yeah, but I mean, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think we've kind of hit on all the things that make it hard to watch for now. But the 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 officiating is really bothering anybody. Who follows me on Twitter knows the officiating is really bothering me. But I've said clearly, I don't think like the officials have it out for the Hawks. I just think the officiating is unstable right, right. now. And it's just something everyone's going to have to live with and kind of adjust with. There are extreme examples like the Chris Paul, you know, <laughs> the uh, possession on Duran Drew Hunter at the end of the Suns game, which was, you know, just egregious. But I still would put that category of the officials are letting defenders get away with more and they don't, and they haven't stabilized where that you know, threshold is, you know, and that's just, they're human beings, you know, doing these jobs that's just kind of how it goes sometimes but it is affecting my ability to just kind of enjoy the game right now hopefully that'll get a little better week over week um but i'm ex- yeah you know i'm i'm trying to you know be i'm people who know me know i'm a really optimistic uh person and uh tend to operate with a lot of positivity i, I you know just getting two game two days off in a row here before they have to play again um uh uh tomorrow night uh in denver um just i'm excited to see what that looks like you know having gotten a little bit of a break i don't know what the what uh hunter mcdonough's status uh will be but that's where the depth should be showing up on paper you know at least um so you know cam is capable of kind of playing bigger minutes and herder i like them finishing games with flyers with herder you know sometimes even instead of mcdonough i like that more gives you more two-way kind of kind of functionality there um, you know, in which game was it where, um, like, Nate called two timeouts late um, for offensive possessions, and they rolled out with Reddish with Hunter with Herder on the bench. I didn't kind of understand that, but hopefully, the team is moving towards closing more often with Herder, uh, closing more often with some of the kind of the lineups. So I, you know, I keep when I think about Herder being on the bench in the games, I keep going back to that game in San Antonio, you know, a couple seasons ago where <laughs> Herder hit the game winner. And it's like that lineup with Hunter was, you know, doing great stuff on that play. Trey set it all up. John's screen, John's ability to run to the opposite side of the floor. It's like, I want more of that, you know? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I, but I, I, I know um, from my own experience with the sport and having been close enough to kind of, um, you know, the NBA version of the sport, the teams are usually trying to build up towards a formula or, built up towards a set of habits or a way of playing where things are getting better and more refined and they're doing more of what they intend to do and i i'm sure that's what the hawks are kind of working on right now and let's see how quickly they can kind of kind of get there and and then we could all start enjoying hawks basketball maybe as much as we did it is last year that sounds good i, I like that idea <laughs> To go back to the officiating, yeah, I agree with you. Like, I'm not going to focus on whether or not it's for the Hawks or against. I mean, in the aggregate, I'm sure it's it's fine, and they're getting 
you know, roughly the same whistle as every other team, excepting that some, you know, maybe the officials are slightly sensitive and, you know, coming into a game where they know it's Trey, just because, you know, Trey and Harden are kind of the poster children for this issue. So, you know, that maybe in the back of some referee's mind, they're a little bit sensitive, but whatever. I don't think that it would vastly out change the outcome of the season to this point, but I, I personally, you know, anytime the NBA has a, a point at which they are going to allow more contact. That's not going to affect the superstars. It's not going to affect a lot of the on ball stuff, but off the ball, they're going to let a lot go. And I just feel like the Hawks are not taking advantage of that gray area to muck stuff up off the ball. If they're going to give you that free reign, they're really going to give you the free reign when the ball is on the other side of the court and your guy's trying to, get himself open with this cut down the baseline, grab his jersey, hold him, give him a bump with your arm. They're not going to call that crap. And just, I don't feel like they're using that enough to impede the opposing offenses. Yeah. And and specifically, like, you know, you and I are old enough to kind of think back, like what it does look like in the eighties and the nineties. It's like, if you didn't know where a referee, where an officiating unit was kind of going to set that threshold, push those boundaries in the first few minutes of the game and find out, find out, you know, Right. And, and and there's an opportunity, I think, for that. And and they still are fairly young, you know, at those kind of, you know, Hunter's, you know, year three and Reddish is right. Same. same and yeah. You know, and I mean, Reddish so, only has like 80 games in his career. Like, right. It's year yeah, three, and, Hunter, but and Hunter played what same, 20 yeah. is 20 something games last year. Yeah. So, you know, that that's totally understandable. Um, but hopefully that's, you know, that might be I know a lot of listeners don't hear this, but that might be a reason to play solo a little bit right now is he will get out there and kind of push the boundary you know, i mean and, and, and that's not good i mean that's good not just because solo can do that but solo can show them hey look this is what i can do did they call right. you know when you watch that film the next day he right. can point out to the kids totally. and say look at this guy wanted to go down the baseline i didn't yeah. let him how did i stop him i was holding that <laughs> right Right, and, and in this area, you know, you're kind of in this little blind spot. There, yep. Especially when the, the, the higher the ball is on the court, the more the officials' eyes are away from what's closer to the baseline. Sure. There's a few, a few things like that, you know. Um, but these guys are not as old as me and you. They're, you know, in their young 20s. So let's give them a little chance there. Uh, but hopefully they'll they'll kind of sort that out as well. Because I do agree that they're, um, I, in, on average, the less physical team in every game, you know, yeah. and that needs to kind of, kind of change. And just so... Listeners know I have this experience with the officials, whether I'm watching a Hawks game or a different game or what have you. I'm just frustrated because I'm like, you know, the thing that makes me I'm curious about is typically every season points of emphasis are well socialized with the teams. And you can even kind of go on NBA.com slash official and find points of emphasis for this year. And there's nothing like I, I what I think. Um, there's been all the talk about Trey and Harden and the unnatural plays and stuff. But one of the things that, one of the things I feel like I'm seeing, and there's been no reporting on this is that the, uh, the NBA wants there to be less variation between the way. Oh, (laughs) well, well, no, what the thing for me is like the way that the postseason is officiated is so different from the regular season. And the Bucks took massive advantage of that smartly uh, last year with their, you know, three, you know, a defensive three seconds and just all the holding yep. the PJ Tucker yep. stuff and all that sort of stuff. And I wonder if the idea is we want there to be less, like we want that we don't want the game to be so different in the postseason than the regular season. So let's open it up for defensive um, for defenses in the regular season and just kind of try to carry on that ba- carry over that baseline into the regular season I feel like that's what I'm seeing is like possibly when I try to guess at what is going on, that's one of the things that kind of comes up for me. It's like, I wonder if they're trying to create more, uh, a more consistent, you know, officiating baseline from the regular season to the postseason, which would be a great thing, I think, but just tell the teams that's what you're doing. <laughs> if that's what right. you're doing, you know, and, and maybe they have, and, and if they're just really told all the teams like, keep this under wraps. We don't want anybody talking about this publicly. Or maybe they haven't. The, the way the players are dealing with it, it looks like they haven't had a, anything in that area socialized. So I'm frustrated for the players, and, and not just Hawks players, but across the league. Like, what is the new normal? Uh, and maybe the officials don't even quite know themselves yet. In, in the grand scheme, that's fine. It's all going to be okay. The officials are are good officials across the board. And it's just a matter of everybody kind of figuring it out. But it, it is 
I mean, full transparency, it's impacting my uh, um, ability to enjoy watching uh, a good game. Uh, um, still very much enjoying it, but let's hope that I, you know, I had a milestone birthday, Kevin, recently. Sometimes I, in the last two weeks, I've been like, is this what I am now? Am I like grumpy? <laughs> I'm not grumpy. That's not, my, it's not a thing I am ever. <laughs> but these officials are making me grumpy sometimes. So let's hope that uh, that that does organically move to a, a place where everyone's kind of um, uh, adjusted. Yeah, for me, I, I mean, I just think it's, and I'm definitely grumpy. Uh, I played my kids and their significant others were streaming video games the other night and they wanted me to play with them so i played with them and on the twitch stream the people that were chatting it's like who's the angry old man it's like yeah that was that was me i was the angry old man playing video yeah. games with the kids but um did, did you push something in the back like uh Jokic got heath there <laughs> <laughs> maybe the video game version um for me it just i think they just want a different product like they just television wise and aesthetic wise like stoppages in play are bad you know free throws are make for awful tv and awful entertainment i mean i guess you can kind of fill the time with a stat or a video or something but it just i just think from the product point of view like you know if you look at it from the thousand mile view like those stoppages from refereeing events where you blow the whistle and you restart things those are bad so i think they try to minimize that even as the game gets more physical and the the playoff thing is just you know taken to the nth degree when teams are trying to scrap for every little bit it's like well now i've got to let a lot of stuff go or i'm gonna have to blow the whistle every two seconds but you know free throws are down it was 17 uh i guess i should do it by attempts but but free throws are down last season it was 21 8 attempts per game per team and this season it is what did I just say twenty one eight. This season it's nineteen nine, so it's down about two free throw attempts a game per team. So it's, I think they're just trying to keep the stoppages to a minimum. And you know, you probably can't come out and make this a point of emphasis. You can't say the point of emphasis is we'd like more continuity because then teams are going to be like, "Well, screw it, we can really push the boundaries." Yeah. yeah. Then the, the teams are like, "Why? Why didn't you tell us that in July?" Because PJ Tucker would be on a max contract if that were <laughs> if that were yeah. the case because yeah. of his ability to operate in the gray space. And I, I'm a huge PJ Tucker guy. I didn't enjoy him in, in the postseason last year, but no, I love those good. guys. That yeah, he's good and he's uh, so. Uh, industrious i'll use that word um i think my favorite pj tucker fact is that i think he was the same draft same team as andrea bargnani like he was the raptors other pick (laughs) which seems pretty amazing totally totally amazing but but this is like the optimist to me is like if they can have a more consistent officiating baseline from regular season postseason i think that'd be awesome so if that's yeah, what I, they're trying to hit, I'm rooting for that. I support that 100. percent It just it just it's, it's ugly right now, you know. Yeah. And we'll just have to live with that. All right. Well, things will get better because for sure. Right now, the Hawks are losing 100 percent of the games, and I and I feel like that has to ease up at some point. Yeah, the offense <laughs> is coming. Yeah, the, the offense, even despite the flaws we talked about, the offense is coming around. Like, it yeah. looks like it's really coming around. The defense, there's some bigger issues there, but um, you know, teams have to work on stuff uh, during the live schedule of the regular season. And, and like we said, I, I think they're going to be fine. Uh, um, they dug a similar hole last year and ended up just fine at the end of the year and had a great postseason. And there's plenty of time to um, kind of catch up on the standings uh, too. So let's uh, watch and enjoy as they uh, start making a move up the standings. Awesome. Well, I appreciate the time, sir. Thanks for having me again, Kevin. Have a good night. And you.